peace. It's something we all desperately want, but can find incredibly elusive. So we, we desire peace on the largest scale, cosmic peace, peace in the Middle East, peace from war and fear. John Lennon perhaps put it most eloquently, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. And and then zooming in from sort of that cosmic level peace, we desire peace in our relationships, right? Our communities, our families. Our home lives and extended families can often be fractured by conflict or bitterness or just distance. But perhaps the most elusive peace of them all is the peace we desire inwardly. The inner peace many religions and and self-help plans promise us. But then again, sometimes the more inward we go, the more reason we find for discouragement and unrest. How can we find peace? Is it something even attainable in this life? Well, we've been working through the letter of Philippians as a church in the New Testament. The, the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember, is, is writing this letter in about 60 AD to a church he had helped begin years earlier in a city in modern-day Greece called Philippi. Paul is currently under house arrest in Rome, waiting to see if he's going to live or die. Uh, The Philippians, who seem to be a dear church to him, uh, have sent a man named Epaphroditus all the way to Rome with a gift for Paul. And Philippians is really the letter Paul is sending back as a thank you. Thank you, Philippi, for loving me. And here's an update on how I'm doing, and, and here's some exhortation from the gospel. As we've studied this book together, we've seen Paul share his immense joy in God's work through him, even in the midst of imprisonment and suffering. And he's been encouraging the Philippians to rejoice and be united together after the model of Jesus, who humbled himself and gave himself for their salvation. And as we come to this final chapter this morning, we'll, Lord willing, finish up the book next week. We see Paul continue on with these main themes of unity and joy. And in the passage Rebecca just read for us, it's it's not super clear exactly how Paul is is trying to arrange his thoughts in these last verses. Uh, So if you read over them, specifically verses 2 through 9 that Rebecca just read, they they can kind of seem great, but more like coffee cup verses because you can just slap them anywhere. They seem a bit disjointed, haphazard. And Paul does this many different places. In other of his New Testament letters, he does these sort of bullet point, rapid fire exhortations. But I think one of the general themes that we could kind of trace through these verses is the theme of peace. Peace with one another in the church. Peace in the midst of anxiety. Peace in our thoughts and actions all rooted ultimately in the peace we have with a holy God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So for our time together this morning, church family, let's divide these verses up then into those kind of three main categories I just mentioned. First, peace and relationship in the church. Peace and relationship 
within the church. Second, peace in anxiety. Peace in anxiety. And finally, peace in thought and action. Peace in thought and action. I pray that as a church, these words would not fall on my ears or your ears and have no result in our lives this week. This is the utmost of gospel practical application to our lives. May it change us this morning. So first, peace in relationship in the church. Paul has been beating this drum incessantly all letter. So back at the end of chapter 1, he wrote, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. What do you want to hear of them? That they're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he urged the believers to complete his joy. How? By being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. The drum is beating incessantly. Uh, He's exhorted them to count each other more significant than themselves. And and then in the middle of chapter 2 came that wonderful description of Jesus himself that kind of anchors this whole letter. Paul is saying, look to Jesus who didn't count his own rights worth holding on to, but made himself nothing in order to save you. This has been the grandest theme of Paul's letter. So if you're like me, you'll you'll hear a a, a TV show theme song or or a catchy classic on the radio, and, and that song will be in your head for the rest of the day. And if you're like me, I need to verbalize and vocalize that much to the chagrin of people who've worked with me or lived with me. If you read Philippians a few times over in short succession, I think the, the catchy tune stuck in your head would be unity, humility, unity, humility, unity, humility. Paul pounds this into the church at Philippi, not heavy-handedly, but gently, even showing himself as an example to them. But here, nearing the end of the letter, Paul does something a bit different. And he actually gets super in their stuff. Super specific. He calls out two women in the church in verse 2. As especially in need of this gospel practical application of unity. So he writes there in verse 2, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. We don't know much about who these women were. Paul says in verse 3 that they indeed labored side by side with him in the gospel, so they were both believers in Jesus. It seems like their book names have been written in the book of life. They are in Christ. They've given themselves sacrificially in the work of the gospel, but in the midst of their life together in the church at Philippi as fellow Christians, strife has come up. There's now disagreement that's affecting the church. There's discord that's publicly seen. And so Paul calls them out, both by name. And he urges them to take everything he's just been talking about to heart. He commands them to agree. And look how he he commands them to agree. He commands them to agree, not just, you know, hug it out. He says, agree in the Lord. He knows it's ultimately the Lord alone who can supply the power to unite them. And he knows 
that they will actually find unity and peace when they find it in the Lord. Dear brother and sister, it's impossible to live long in a local community of believers without experiencing conflict with another Christian in your church. So we're celebrating three years of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church this morning. It's a joy and a testament to God's faithfulness, but it's also a testament to the fact that three years of sinful people living together in covenant with each other will bring conflict. That has and will continue to cause conflict in our church. You know, I just prayed and thanked the Lord for no schism or divide in our church. And that's true, but, but we've been offended. We've been wronged. Yet part of being a citizen of heaven, part of living in a manner worthy of the gospel, as Paul has been teaching the Philippians, is to not let conflict or, or grievances morph and fester into schism, but in humility to strive for peace. So if you're a member of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, you've signed your name to our church covenant, which isn't a law we add to the end of the gospel, but merely a tool for us to be able to exercise the gospel to each other and keep each other accountable. And as part of what you have signed your name to, you've signed up to agree to pray for and seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If you're a member of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, it's your job. It's not the job of the elders only though we hope to lead out in that. It isn't the job of the uber-spiritual in our midst, though we hope they lead out in that as well. Every member of this church has been tasked and even indeed empowered by the Holy Spirit to promote the unity of this church. I think it's important to see how Paul there in verse 2 entreats both Yodia and Syntyche to live in peace together. Do you, do you see that he, he kind of... He kind of uses more words than he needs to. He says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche. Why don't just join them together? He doesn't emphasize one of them to the exclusion of the other. Both are commanded to obey. Both are commanded to strive for peace. So it should be for us, church. In our skirmishes with one another as members of this local body, we must strive for peace and not merely wait for another to act. The late Bible scholar Alec Mateer writes on this passage, and he says, no doubt each woman here said, I'm right, she's wrong. But to Paul, each was under the same obligation to make the first move. Church, may we be initiative takers in promoting unity, as Paul urges the Philippians here. After all, this disagreement between Yodia and Syntyche was to involve the church. We see that in verse 3. Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There are different takes on who exactly Paul is addressing here. Um, this true companion or, or true yoke fellow. It could be one of the leaders of the church, one of the overseers that he mentioned in the first few verses. Uh, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that notes another possibility, and that is that these words could actually be a man's name, Syzygis, maybe. It, it could also be that since Paul's leaving it 
sort of ambiguous, perhaps. Maybe he's just kind of putting out a call for every person in the church to engage in the struggle for unity. But regardless, Paul is including the church as peacemakers and mediators in the conflict between these two sisters. He wants them to agree in the Lord. And that will take the involvement of their church family. Member of Loudoun Valley, are you in conflict with another member of this local church? I'm not talking about just not talking to them. But is there tension? Bitterness? Disagreement that is really more than something that you can look over in love, but instead is something that might develop into strife? Take the first step. Trust God's plan for peace in his body. Walk in humility like Jesus who gave himself up for you. Jesus will build his church. Jesus has established peace for us with God, and he will continue to work in us as we walk with him. So that's the first point for us to see in this text this morning, that is peace in relationship in the church. Second, peace in anxiety. So beginning in verse 4, we see these sort of rapid-fire exhortations from Paul. And again, there are different ways we could arrange these commands. But for verses 4 through 7, I think we see above everything else this sort of peace in anxiety. So the church at Philippi may have been anxious for numerous reasons. Perhaps this disunity between Yodia and Syntyche really was disturbing the peace of the church and bringing anxiety. Uh, perhaps... Uh, their anxiety was more due to the, the opposition from without that Paul talks about throughout the letter, or especially in chapter 1. But every single Christian at Philippi, indeed every single Christian ever, indeed every single person ever, knows what anxiety is. Anxiety is concern gone haywire. Anxiety is concern gone out of control. Anxiety is fear of what might happen and then the dawning realization that you have no control over what will happen. Concern and fear can be healthy things, for sure. If you're about to go into active combat, anxiety is a must. It will save your life. So you don't act like a fool and pretend nothing's wrong and you're not getting shot at. But what's in view here in Philippians 4 is anxiety that is sinful. Anxiety that at its root distrusts God. This kind of anxiety, given full reign in the heart of the Christian, will not stop at mere concern, but will actually stampede into unbelief in God. Unbelief in his goodness. Unbelief in his power. Actually, at its root, sinful anxiety seeks to unseat God from his throne. Sinful anxiety removes trust from God as it sees what he's allowing to happen and instead places trust in someone or something else, usually ourselves, to make those things better. And that kind of anxiety left unchecked spirals into complete disarray because we are terrible at playing God. So what does Paul say about 
finding peace and anxiety. Well, before he gets to that specifically, we see what else he has to say in verse 4, right? He reiterates this great theme of Philippians, this theme of joy. He writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Joy is a constant for the believer. It's not a stamped smile on the face. It's a joy rooted in a God who will always be and in truths that will always be true. That's why it's an always type of joy. Rejoice always. As Christians, dear friends, we know God has made us, that he's pursued us, that he's loved us, that he's brought us back, that he sent his son to rescue us, that he's taken our sin and cast it as far as the east is from the west, that he's raised us with Christ, he's sealed us with his spirit, he's preparing a place for us, and one day he'll send his son in victory to make everything right in our life. As Christians, we know that once lost, we're now found. Once blind, we can now see. Once dead, we have been made alive. Once God's enemy, we've been made his sons and daughters. Once destined for judgment in hell, we've been written into the book of life. That truth is an always truth. And that's the ground of our always joy as Christians. It will never change. Paul goes on then to say in verse 5, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I think this might harken back to what he just said about Yodia and Syntyche. Because that that word also can kind of mean gentleness. So in the Philippians, might be expected to be harsh or retaliatory in conflict, whether from within or without. Paul urges them instead to respond in gentleness. You can imagine how that would aid in the unity of the church amid conflict, right? A gentle answer turns away wrath, as the proverb says. And then at the end of verse 5, Paul states that theological truth that kind of anchors this part of the passage. The Lord is at hand. He reminds them Jesus is near. He's present with his people and he's coming back perhaps soon. And it's this truth that then anchors what he says next. And now we get back to specifically anxiety. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Now for those of you who consider yourself anxious people, and it's all of us for at least some seasons of our lives, Some of us, it's all our lives. You'll know that someone coming to you in the heat of anxiety and worry and saying, stop it, does no good. Anxiety is simply something you don't switch off. You can't. It's all you can do not to think about what you're anxious about for one moment during the day, let alone leaving behind that sinful worry completely, right? Paul knows that. And so he doesn't leave the Christians at at Philippi neutral, wondering where to go next. Instead, he shows a new direction. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, 
By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, he says, let your requests be made known to God. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because if sinful anxiety is this desire to unseat God from his authoritative throne, a desire to attempt to run our own lives and control our own futures because he's sure screwing it up, then the best cure to that sinful anxiety is prayer. Why? Because prayer, by definition, declares God on his throne. Prayer recognizes, that's why it's prayer, prayer recognizes God's authority and power and care and sovereignty. J.I. Packer puts it like this. He says, the prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helpless dependence. He says, what we do every time we pray is confess our own impotence and God's sovereignty. And that's why, friends, prayer is agony for the man or woman who is fighting God for control. Prayer is agony for the Christian who is fighting God for control. Because in that scenario, prayer feels like war. And it is. In that scenario, we want God to relinquish control. We want to hang on to some vestiges of religious prayer, but we really all we want to do is for him to give up his control and allow us to wrest it from his grip because he's not leading us the way we want to be led. So we claw for our own rights. But prayer cedes all control to God. Prayer trusts God. Christian, is there a realm in your life untouched by prayer? Think about where you're most prone to anxiety right now. Are you praying fervently about that? Not just to get out of it, not just that the Lord would make it go away, but for him to come to you in it and grant you peace. If he's on his throne, he's actually allowed that trial in your life. Who better to go to than the one who is in control? Paul writes that through the power of prayer given to us by God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's the imagery of kind of a garrison of soldiers. How wonderful that the garrison around us, our hearts and minds, is the peace of God. I remember a dear friend of mine, and I was talking to him about just struggles in my life in people-pleasing and doing things to get glory from others, which is something you can pray for me about. And, and his response was like, pray. Prayer will be something you spend a lot of time on. It'll take work, and nobody's going to see it. Loudon Valley Baptist Church, if we are to grow in unity and humility over the next three years, we must pray for it. We must pray, as our covenant says, for and pray for and seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. 
If you don't have a, a membership directory and you're a member of this church, we have those at the Connect table, the, the latest edition. Grab one of those if you've forgotten where you've put yours. Devote time each day to praying for others in this church. One of Charles Spurgeon's last writings was the greatest fight in the world, and he said, believe me, if a church does not pray, it is dead. Instead of putting united prayer last, put it first, for everything will hinge upon the power of prayer in the church. Perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian, and so you totally get the whole anxiety thing. But the prayer thing and the trusting God thing seems a little bit harder to see how they do for yourself. Well, thank you for being here. We do have much in common. We are anxious people. But to be clear, the, the anxiety and the, the, actually the peace that, that we are ultimately after is not some sort of inner calm. It can often include that, but, but as Christians, we root our peace in something much deeper. The Bible teaches that because of sin, because we've rebelled against God, we, are, we have a, an unpeaceful relationship with him. Our relationship with the God who made us is fractured. That's why life is so uneasy. That's why this world is so corrupt. That's why you cannot find inner peace because you are an enemy of God in your sin. But when we could do nothing to save ourselves from that terrible situation, the Bible also gives us the wonderful news that God came to us. That he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus took our sin on himself, that he gave us new hearts, new life. That God judged Jesus and set us free. And that gives us peace with God forever. That's the deepest peace anyone can ever have. Peace with the creator of the cosmos. And the only way to peace with God is through Jesus, who took on our enemy status and was condemned by God so we could know the peace he had always known with God. I love how in Ephesians, Paul says, In Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I love this phrase. He himself is our peace. Dear friend, if you will turn to Jesus in repentance and faith this morning, you will find peace with God. Peace in church relationships, peace in anxiety. Final point briefly, peace in thought and action. Look there in verse 8. Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul is speaking here to Christians, to those who have that peace with God through Christ that we just talked about. And so this, this isn't him saying, you do this and God will give you peace with him. God will wash away your sins. No, he's talking to people who've already had their sins washed away, who have peace with God. And he's saying, actually, if you want more practical peace with God, 
the peace of God present with you, the God of peace present with you, here's how you can grow in holiness as new creatures in Christ. Here's part of how you can nurture and grow your faith. Your growth in holiness must include your thoughts. Our thoughts always affect our actions. But as, as church people, we can find ourselves doing all we can not to let people into that part of our life, right? So we can pretty up our appearance, we can pretty up our language and our, our prayers when we're around others. But when it comes to our thoughts that we just thought this past week, we often keep those tucked away for fear of what might be seen there. For the Christian, for the one who has peace with God, our minds are being renewed. And so Paul urges us, as those in Christ, to live like Christ lived, not to save ourselves, but to grow in becoming more like him. And that will happen in many ways, many times starting with our thought diets. What is your thought diet? What occupies your downtime? What drives your daydreams? Paul's writing this because it takes discipline to focus on the things of God and the things of his creation that are true and excellent and beautiful and pure. It takes discipline to focus on the one who's the root of all those characteristics, and that is God himself. So Christian, take stock of your thought diet. So one of my favorite items of food is sushi. So some of you might gag in your mouths right there, but it's literally my favorite food in the world. But last time I checked, I think an ounce of sushi and an ounce of gold were relatively equal in, in payment. I didn't check on that, it's not true. But sushi's just way too overpriced. But I'll indulge in it five, six times a year. But eggs? I think eggs sneak their way into every single part of my day. Sorry for those of you who are allergic to eggs. But bread, the bread I ate this morning, that had eggs in it. Eggs that I eat for breakfast, the whatever. It's everywhere. Eggs are an everyday sort of thing. Applying that then to my thought diet and to yours, I wonder, is thinking upon the excellencies of God, sushi, thinking about the excellencies of God to you, one of those kind of rare delicacies you indulge in every time, once in a while when you have time to spend, when you have wiggle room in your schedule, or is thinking about the excellencies of God a staple part of your daily diet? John MacArthur says, the Bible leaves no doubt that people's lives are the product of their thoughts. It's a sober reminder for us, dear church, to discipline ourselves for holiness. What will we ponder? What will we consider in our thoughts? Because those things will inevitably come out in our actions. That's what Paul says there in verse 9. He says, don't just think about excellent things, but the things you've seen from me, practice these things. It's really coming back to another theme in Philippians, right? This theme of working out our salvation while God works it out in us. Here it is again. 
As true followers of Jesus with new hearts, we must respond with thought and deed devoted to his glory, and the God of peace will be with us. Christian, are you pondering the excellence of God? Are you pondering the excellent things in his creation? Are you acting on those thoughts so that your life is given more to the glory of the one who has made you? Paul urges the Philippians here to peace in relationship within the church, peace in anxiety, and peace in thought and action. Have you grown in those areas since 2016, Loudoun Valley? You know I have. And I know many of you have. So there are many things we need to work on as a church. That's why we're having a vision meeting next month. As long as the Lord keeps us as a local congregation, we will need to press on and increase in faith and love and unity. But for today, take a moment to look back. Think of the ways God has provided his peace and grace to us in anxiety and conflict. And turn those memories into thanksgiving. Asking him to continue to lead us until we're all the way home. May he be with us. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your peace. Our greatest desire in this lifetime is peace. Our greatest desire for eternity is peace. And Lord, we thank you that you have opened our blind eyes to find that peace in you. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who are clawing after peace in other places and finding those things failing them. Turn them to yourself again. We pray for those in our midst who haven't found peace with God through Jesus, who are still enemies with God. Open their eyes and bring them to you, please, Lord, for your glory and their joy. We pray, Lord, that for our church, that you would make your peace ours in ever-increasing measure, as we work out our salvation, you would work in and through us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. All so that at the end, and when we look back, we can see our growth and at the same time cry out that it was not us, but Christ in us. Be with us now as we sing and proclaim your goodness and faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.